0: Welcome to the Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm Andrew Knowlton, Deputy Editor at the Magazine. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Chef Magnus Nielsen of Favikin Restaurant. Probably the restaurant right now that I want to go to the most. And for those people who don't know, how do I get to your restaurant? So you'll probably take a flight to either Oslo or Stockholm. And then
1: uh, either a flight from uh, Oslo to Trondheim and rent the car there or from Stockholm to uh, Östersund. I rent the car there, and then it's about a 45-minute drive from Ostersund.
0: Okay, and you're in a town called... It's not really a town. It's not a town. It's
1: just really a farm with a restaurant on it.
0: And it's the 25th on the world's best restaurant list. I would say for a lot of people, it's the kind of the number one destination restaurant right now. How did you end up there? So I came there... In uh,
1: 2007, early 2008, mm-hmm. and I was actually uh, um, sort of employed as a consultant for just a couple of months initially to help out with the wine cellar. Okay. Because the restaurant, I didn't start a restaurant, it's been there since 1986. Okay. But it was a bit different before. Okay. Um, and I came there and it turned out that I got along really well with the um, owners uh-huh. of the farm uh-huh. or the estate. Um and you know we started working together and eventually became business
0: partners okay and then how did you end up in the kitchen
1: uh, yeah I trained as a chef I worked as a chef and then I got a little bit bored with that okay. and I um, retrained as a sommelier okay but I couldn't find, like, when we started sort of changing the restaurant, I couldn't find anyone who wanted to work there because no one knew about it. And no one wanted to move to right. a, a little farm <laughs> up in the countryside in Yenatan. Um So in the, like, the first six months, it was just me. And I did both. It was just a communal table for eight. And I did both uh, cooking and uh, serving. House. And, yeah. Okay. And so then, it was only eight seats. Yeah, then. Okay. Uh, and then uh, after about half a year, uh, I found a person that wanted to work in the dining room. And we opened up what's
0: now the dining room. Okay. Um,
1: and she took care of that, and I took care of the
0: kitchen. And so, if I do want to go, so I make a reservation at the... Because you basically have to stay at the farm. Like. No, nah, you don't have to, but you don't. most people do. We actually don't have enough beds for everyone. Oh, you don't. So how many um, beds do
1: you have? We have 12. We uh, have six rooms. Okay. And and there are 16 seats in the dining room. Then we have a separate communal table for eight also. All right. Uh, so the maximum capacity is 24. Um but yeah. this, as I said before, is quite close to the ski resort, aura. so. There's plenty of oh, there's hotels plenty of and places stuff there. To yeah, say. Yeah.
0: And then, do you? How far out is it? Is it booked these days? Uh,
1: we're we we at the moment we're booked out um, all the dates that are available.
0: I mean, I know you've been on the Mind of a Chef series here in the states, and as well as Chef's Table. Yep. Um, so, so listeners probably have some familiarity. Has that helped generate? More Americans going to the restaurant? Or who, who, who's the makeup of the, of the restaurant?
1: We, like, we've, we've never seen uh, a single thing we've done with media uh-huh. that has generated like, a huge impact on its own. Okay. They all kind of accumulate into something. Right. And we've actually always had quite a lot of Americans coming over. Uh-huh. Um, so 50% of our customers are Scandinavian, okay. mostly Swedish it's and Norwegian. Swedish. Yeah. Um, and then you know, the second biggest market outside of that is the UK. And then after that comes the U.S. So maybe 10% of our revenue comes from American customers. Okay.
0: You're pretty far north. Mm. So it's land in the midnight sun mostly. And then right now it's kind of dark. It's (laughs) kind of dark. That's where the death metal comes from. But is, and I know everything by and large is local. I mean, we say that all the time, local, local, local. But this literally is everything comes from the farm. So what is there in the winter? Like, are you, how do you get by?
1: You know, basically, I think that regardless where you run your restaurant and like what kind of restaurant you do, uh, what you sh- sort of should aim to do is to make the most out of whatever you have. Meaning that, you know, you need to let the circumstances surrounding the restaurant itself be a big part of the way you run it. Mm-hmm. And for us, it makes sense to work mostly with um, producers uh, in the immediate area around the restaurant itself mm-hmm. simply because it's the easiest and best way to get great quality. Right. If I ran the restaurant in a city, I would perhaps try to make the most out of, you know, all the cultural influx and all the different um, products that come into a city, all the variety instead, you know. So I think it's really about making the most out of whatever you have.
0: Mm-hmm. So, like, in December, January, when it's there's nothing growing a lot that's not mm. growing, what, what are you doing? Is, is it all cured and preserved? And Well, it's actually you know uh, if you think about it this way if you buy a carrot
1: in january yeah. here in new york uh-huh. uh most likely that carrot is not going to be pulled straight from the soil right, right. it's going to be harvested and it's going to have you know it's going to be stored by someone else right It's just that we do it ourselves okay because there's no one there you know to do it for you okay um so we actually have access to much more material, much more produce than people think in the winter. Okay. Um and a lot of the brassicas, you know, the kales and the cabbages and the brassel sprouts and all that stuff is still it's still sitting in the garden, even if it's covered with snow. Uh, all the root vegetables is the same They're as fine. anywhere else. And okay, a lot of herbs and things like that, they uh they remain green and they
0: continue, you know, existing just covered in insulating snow. Uh-huh. And do you I guess the food that you do, and this will lead into why we're here, but is the food you do Swedish or is it Nordic or do you not even think about it in any terms like that? I know you uh, hate that question, but I have to ask It's it. mine. It's <laughs> what it is. Yeah,
1: And it's actually, it's very difficult to, I think, to uh, like compartmentalize or label what you do like that because yeah. like part of it is that it, that question kind of belongs to whoever goes there to eat. Right. If you pay to go there to eat, you kind of also somehow acquire the right to describe your experience without someone writing you on the nose what it's supposed to be Mm -hmm. Um, and also it it, it would be quite limiting to decide you know what to call it because it's just a reflection of me as a person you know Mm -hmm. growing up in that region running my restaurant in that region obviously the local food culture Mm -hmm. uh, of the area is a big part of the way we run the restaurant but also influenced by everything else that I do all the traveling you know and all the meeting of people and
0: uh, all the influences that come from elsewhere. Mhm. So I guess then this this that question kind of leads into the book which is just out yep. n- the Nordic uh cookbook. It's uh ginormous, do you know? Uh, <laughs> do, you, do you know uh how many pages it is by heart? I don't actually. I know it's 1.2 million uh, uh, letters in it. Really, yeah. 1.2 million. So it's 768 pages. Oh, that's a lot of pages. Do you know how much it weighs? I was going to weigh it before I came down I no here. A couple of kilos. It, it, it's a good. It would make. It's a great cookbook, but it would make a good doorstop also. <laughs> Definitely. So I mean, I know I've read the intro and I've flipped through it, and you kind of talk about this in the intro. Talk a little bit about the kind of stupidity of trying to do a book. <laughs> that encompasses Iceland. Yeah. Is Finland included? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so Iceland, the, Finland, Norway, um, Denmark, Denmark, Faroe Islands, Orland, Greenland. Right. There, you know. So, and, uh, and you basically say it's like doing a book <laughs> on America, like America, including Canada, all the way down to Chile or yeah. something. So the thing, about- the, yeah.
1: The thing is that, like, the Nordic region. The first thing is that most people don't even know what the Nordic region is. You know the difference between the Nordics and Scandinavia, for example, and all you know all that stuff. And the thing with the Nordic region is that it's not a cultural region, which mm-hmm. is homogenous. It's um it's a geographical construction. It's a, you know someone said that these c- countries here together on the map here they mm-hmm. are Nordic countries, right? Right. Um, but it's a vast area. You know, from Finland in the east to um, uh, Greenland all the way in the west, right? And everything in between. So naturally, you're going to have a lot of diversity, like cultural diversity, and geographical diversity within that area Uh leading to you know different food cultural expressions Uh so it's like the idea of it being a homogenous cultural region that you can just you know have one food culture in that could have a name was to me very very disturbing in the beginning
0: (laughs) so did you go did you travel all the
1: all yeah yeah Yeah, yeah. i've I've, uh, so I've, i've been working on the book for about three years okay and like, obviously, some of the research work has been dedicated for the book. Right. But I've always traveled a lot always within travel. the region um, because it's been part of the process of, you know, producing the restaurant as well. Right. Um, Kind of that's how it came So out.
0: So what, when did you, just, you went from, that's a dumb idea, there's no way I can, you know, yeah. do this to, what the hell, I'm going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> so so it was what was there, like, I can do this or like? It was, it was kind of that I
1: realized that no one actually understands what it is. Uh-huh. Because in... In most people's minds, like the Nordic cooking or Nordic food is kind of a, you know, it's a, it's a term that's sort of has value. Right. It means something. Yeah. Uh, also within the region itself, the problem is that very few people know what it is. Right. And like the information you get, like obviously you have the, uh, the herrings and the gravlax right. and the meatballs and <laughs> those dishes that are kind of, there may be two handfuls of dishes that are very iconic. Right. And then you're going to have seen uh, uh some, some clip on YouTube where uh, Anthony Bourdain eats rotten shark on Iceland. Right. <laughs> uh, or some other very, very odd product. Right. And then, you know, a lot about uh, restaurants like my own, Faviken, yes. which hardly represents everyday I, right. food culture. Right. And that's what makes up the picture of Nordic cooking. Uh-huh. And it's not really representative of what people actually eat.
0: <laughs> right. Does, is there... Um, I mean, it's funny, and your, your restaurant, Faviken, and, uh, has had this has been influential but is it kind of funny to to think about nordic food and how it like it's has street cred now and it's cool yeah <laughs> i mean isn't that kind of
1: weird it, it is and it's also it's kind of interesting because nordic food culture it's like the way it's consumed uh-huh. uh and thereby also communicated is quite different from like let's say sort of southern european food culture uh if you go to spain probably half of the food culture there is carried by restaurants and the other half by, pe- by people in their homes. Right. So if you go to a restaurant in Spain somewhere mm-hmm. and you have a meal, it's a pretty good chance that it's going to be at least somewhat representative of Spanish everyday cooking. Right. If you do the same in the Nordic region, you're not going to have that. Because in the Nordic region, the traditional food culture is carried almost to 100% by people in their homes. It's very right. inaccessible. Yes. Um, so I think it's quite fascinating that it's become so... You know, popular
0: right um, well it's almost whether it's um chefs in oslo or chefs in stockholm th- mm. they've also rediscovered their roots yeah definitely and they're still doing so they're there's still doing a lot so that hasn't been done there well my wife's norwegian and so we have probably 25 nordic cookbooks yeah. everything from um you know a celebrity chef in in oslo or you know specifically norwegian baking and and i agree with you that you say in the intro most of them suck. Yeah. Because there's, they do. Because there's no, there's zero context mm. for any of the recipes when I'm flipping through it as somebody who yeah. just happens to be married to a Norwegian. Mm. What, How was that important for you in writing the book to give every, because every single recipe in here has a, a head note or a little yeah. story behind it. How important was that to you?
1: To me, that was very, actually very important because um, there are plenty of recipe collections and the thing is that you can only relate to those recipes if you already have, like the the knowledge is assumed, you know, mm-hmm. you have to have it already to mm-hmm. understand them. Uh, and not even within the region itself, is it, is it common to have that knowledge, you know, mm-hmm. um, simply because it is not homogenous, uh, you know, on a cultural plane. Um, so for me, it's really important to not just give the recipes, but also to explain like where they came from, why and why they make sense, mm-hmm. you know, or why they did make sense at mm-hmm. some point. It's really a, uh, a snapshot of what Nordic everyday food culture is today, mm-hmm. with a little bit of you know background with historical dishes and stuff like that that mm-hmm. people perhaps don't cook very much anymore, right. but you still need to understand to understand what we eat today.
0: Right. Well, I mean, a, a good example is um, I was looking at your the ramagrot, hmm. which tell people what that is in Norway.
1: So it's a it's a it's a porridge dish made from uh, cultured cream. Uh-huh. It's one of the more iconic Norwegian dishes. Uh-huh. And it's something that every Norwegian person will intimately connect with their country. Yeah, yeah. But it's not necessarily something that people eat very often. I think
0: it's mostly around the holidays. I it think, is. right?
1: It's a special thing. You do it a couple times a year.
0: Well, I was I was talking with Esben um, Bang from uh, Mimo, which is I would say probably Norway's best restaurant, high end dining. Definitely. Um, and he has ramagrot on his menu. Yeah. And people, Norwegians who come in there, freak out because they're they're like, "This is what my grandmother makes." And it's and it's just interesting, and I think it's happened all over Scandinavia, is taking those dishes that are traditionally, you know, home cooking and putting in the context of a restaurant, yeah. it messes with people.
1: It does because we're not used to consume our own food culture like that. Right. Because the, the idea of having an everyday meal in a restaurant mm-hmm. in the Nordics, it's like it's quite new. It's like the last twenty or thirty Why years is perhaps. That? I think it has to do with uh, geographical reasons and stuff like that, you know, uh, like in, in the in a historical perspective, mm-hmm, mm. uh, you know, the uh, most of the region being quite scarcely populated restaurants, not being viable, you know, right. stuff like that. Uh, so we just simply shaped our own food culture so that it is consumed in, in the home. Right. So a restaurant, traditionally, it's either somewhere you bring, you know, your family to celebrate an occasion, like when someone turns 70. Right. <laughs> Once in a while. Or it's somewhere you go to get drunk. Right, yeah, and, and there's very little in between those, and and like the, the fact that people go out and have everyday meals, which you do now, like in anywhere, like like in any city in the whole world, right? Um, it's a new thing, and most of those restaurants
0: they're not serving
1: traditional Nordic food; they're right. serving other things,
0: right? Uh, it seems like there's in in Scandinavia the, there's people go out for pizza, um, or then they just get like you said, they just go out to get wasted.
1: Yeah, and it's much easier to find like. A really nice authentic Thai meal in Stockholm than it is to find, find an, uh, uh, a Swedish traditional <laughs> everyday meal. Um,
0: that's interesting. I guess how do you want people to consume this book? Because it's literally thousand thousands of recipes. It's dense. I mean, is it just picking it up and just thumbing through it, or how do you you know how do you want people who don't have a relationship with Scandinavia to kind of. Use I, I think
1: it. I think the way to do it is really to read the narrative introductions to uh-huh. the recipes uh-huh. and to the uh, different sections of the book. And so those
0: sections are kind of. Tel- tel- it's by product. It's by product. Yeah. So you have marine mammals and seafood. You have beef and veal. Yeah. Okay.
1: But if you read those introductions and introductions to the recipes, mm-hmm. uh, then you have the background to understand you know, why the recipes make sense mm-hmm. and how they're consumed, which garnishes are served with them and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there are very few recipes for finished dishes as well. Most of the recipes are for a part of a dish. Okay. And then in the introduction, it says how you serve it most often, you know, with which uh, with which potato garnish, with which sauce and stuff like that. And it cross-references to those. But like, do not leave the the introductions out. Because like, yeah. it's really important
0: to read them. Just to get people you know you have written a big book when it comes with its own built in bookmarker, to Yes. You, by the way. Um <laughs> what um talk to me a little bit about just the project of you started with double the amount of recipes, or I mean was there a lot on the cutting room floor? Yes. Yeah. So
1: uh it's very interesting to do research like this, I think at least. Uh-huh. Uh and I kind of just continued doing it. And about one year ago, um, Immediately, the publisher at Faden, emailed me and said that you have to start delivering material now. You can't just (laughs) continue doing research because you'll go on forever. It will never end. that's the fun part, right? It is. I thought it was, you know, and and by that time, I had um, about 11,000 recipes and, like, newspaper clippings and articles and little sound recordings and stuff like that that we started to kind of weed through.
0: Wow. And then decided, okay, these are the 1,000 or so that we're going to include. And then did you use old recipes and update them or and then how did you test uh, them I haven't done
1: much to the recipes at all okay uh, except make them kind of relatively coherent in quantity okay because a lot of them are very like huge quantities you were
0: like a whole Uh, village you were cooking for a village kind of yeah
1: Um, so we tried to make them relatively coherent in in, in that sense Um, but aside of that they're not my recipes they're I've just documented them okay so I haven't changed anything okay um And uh, I've tested about 400 of them in my own house. And that's actually like the photos of the recipes because I took all the atmospherics and like the documentary photo. Oh, you did? And then the the shots of the recipes themselves. Mm -hmm. It's uh, Eric, um, the photographer who does a lot of work at Faviken. And all of those dishes that you see in in the um, composite shots of dishes, Mm -hmm. they are from the actual testing of the recipes. So they're not made for photo they're made to test the recipes okay at my house in a domestic kitchen
0: and did your did your aunt also help you
1: she helped with a lot of the data processing (laughs) (laughs) and 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 the thing is that those 400 recipes i tried in my own home and then uh, most of the others i've tried on site when collecting the recipes
0: so what three recipes do i have to try out of this book do you have three favorites like,
1: it's kind of difficult to say because the whole point because <laughs> there's seven hundred of them, yeah, yeah. And, and also because the whole point has been to me not to like impose my personal opinion on right. the content too much, but right. rather try
0: to make it as representative as possible of the region. Mm-hmm. Um so I, I don't think is I there have. any is there any um is there one recipe that you you know didn't know and kind of it was a discovery for you oh, and was part of your yeah
1: yeah because yeah, yeah. the thing is that like I thought I knew a lot about this region because I had a special interest for a long time uh, and I worked professionally with trying to research food culture Um, and it turned out
0: that I didn't know at all as much as I thought (laughs) (laughs) which was kind of nice you know Um, and you do have a recipe just for the record for Swedish meatballs Uh, Several, several and why did you decide to publish in English and not the native language of the countries because it's uh, you know it will reach much more people yeah so are, are they going to be that. published in Norwegian or Swedish? They're discussing with different publishers
1: now. Okay. And I'm not sure because uh, in Scandinavia, we consume books
0: in English as right. much as in I mean, our own languages. You speak English better than uh, I, I do. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a beautiful book. If you have any interest in the beauty of Scandinavia, and you definitely have to pick it up. And I think one thing is, obviously you did the favicon cookbook mm. a couple years ago. But I think it's refreshing to see a, a chef kind of go back to the roots and just uh, put out a book that is not based on you or yeah. pretension or anything yeah. like that. It's know? actually
1: it's actually it's interesting as a as a chef to a really well known restaurant as well to do a project like this, yeah, where you're um, on purpose trying to leave yourself out of it as much as right. possible instead of doing the opposite, which is the normal way we work, right? You know, to make it all about euro uh, nineties and stuff right. like
0: that. Well I, I just want to thank you personally because now I get to throw away those twenty Scandinavian <laughs> cookbooks now and just have one. So uh Magnus Nielsen, um author of uh the huge Nordic cookbook and also you know chef at Favakin. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. But before uh I, I let you go, we do have our lightning round questions. Okay, what's that? <laughs> and um so I'm gonna give you choices and you have to choose one. You have to choose one. <laughs> And if you want to explain why you chose that one, you can do that also. Some of them are pretty straightforward, though. All right, we'll start with lingonberries or cloudberries. Lingonberries. Tell people what what the difference in those berries are. So the lingonberry is uh,
1: like just sugared. It's like the ketchup of the Nordic region. It's used (laughs) on almost anything savory. It somewhat um,
0: looks like a currant almost? It of? looks like a cranberry but smaller. Okay.
1: And it has that kind of tart cranberry flavor to it. Right. Um, it, it,
0: it's the stuff that you get with your meatballs at Ikea, yes. right? Yes. Yeah. And then cloudberries? Cloudberries,
1: they they, they grow on um, um like on bogs and marshlands. Okay. And they're very perfumed. They smell of kind of tropical yellow fruit like passion fruit or ripe mango or something uh-huh. like that. And it's more of a, I, I like them a lot. They grow a lot where I live as well in the north. Um, It's more of a dessert kind of uh okay. berry. Okay. It's not as versatile.
0: Um downhill or cross country skiing? Downhill. Downhill. Uh fishing or hunting? Both. Both. <laughs> <laughs> um do you fish and hunt on the property lot Yes I do. What for? Um like fishing is mostly trout
1: or Arctic char up there. Okay. And hunting. I like hunting for small game mm-hmm. like grouse
0: and Capricale and you know stuff like that. And is it uh it's guns or bow and arrow? No, it's guns. No <laughs> error. Uh, Pickling or curing? Can't say both. <laughs> I like pickling. Um, meatballs or groblocks? Meatballs. Uh, which is worse, no-shows or rowdy guest? No-shows. Do you rowdy have no-shows at <laughs> Uh <clears throat>
1: Not anymore, because now people pay in advance. <laughs> uh, we used to have. Uh, we used to have when we used to have a lot of late cancellations. People who, you know, make a reservation at the restaurant three mm-hmm. months ahead and then, the week before, they realized that they were not going to make it. Right. And then we couldn't fill the seats. But now when we have, uh, you know, um, tickets for the food, um, that's sort of a problem that's vanished. And and the
0: guestry is fun. You know? Right. Um, first day of spring or first day of winter? First day of spring. Uh, Kit Kat or Kvik Lunch? <laughs> <Kit-Kat>. <laughs> <laughs> Kit Kat. Kvik Lunch is Norwegian. <laughs> <laughs> uh, ABBA or AHA? <laughs> hmm. that's hard it? <laughs> <laughs> it's very hard <laughs> oh, that's the <laughs> good Swedish kid all right Magnus thanks so much for joining us oh, thank you thanks This podcast is brought to you by executive
1: producer Belle Cushing and project manager Carrie Polis with editing by Mitra Kaboli. The theme music is by Valerie and the Greedies. Tune in every Wednesday for a new episode on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.